everyone, and welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society and what we can do to make them better. I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. Today we are joined by the magnificent Adam Mastriani. I was trying to use a little bit of alliteration there. I think Adam has a flair for not just science, but entertainment, and we'll talk more about that in our conversation. Dr. Mastriani received his PhD in psychology from Harvard in 2021 and is now a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia Business School. His research specialty is in the psychology of social perceptions and misperceptions. In other words, how people come to either understand or misunderstand our complex social world. Dr. Mastriani also runs a successful substack called Experimental History, which has gotten a lot of positive attention, not just from other scholars, but from a mainstream audience. Dr. Mastriani is also a comedian. In fact, I think you've taught at the Improv Boston Comedy School. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. And uh, now I, uh, I perform in D.C. as well, um, where I spend part of my time. Awesome. We are very excited to talk about a variety of topics here, including political attitudes, the alleged stupidity of the average person, the peer process of peer review, and much more. Dr. Adam Mastriani, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I think we want to start off with just the substack that you have. And I think for me personally, this is a very interesting route that you've taken in academic research. I mean, I feel like you immediately jumped to a kind of science communication model, which I really wish more scientists would engage with. And not only that, it's been very successful. And I feel like there's a ton of comments and a ton of likes and a ton of like buzz around your articles when they come out. And so, yeah, you have this substack called Experimental History. I'd love for you to just tell us more about how you started there and how that experience has been. And I'm also just as someone who's going to be on the job market not too long from the future, <laughs> how did how did, is that part of the selling point when you're looking for postdocs and stuff like that too, that you have so much buzz around your work on substack? So I'd just be curious about that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So to, to answer your, your first question first, um, like how and why did it start? Basically I had, um, some friends who, <laughs> who blog, uh, pseudonymously under the name, um, slime mold time mold. And they were like, you should start a blog. And, uh, and, and they're really great bloggers. They, they, um, they got a lot of attention. Um, and I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. One day, one day. And they're like, you should really start a blog. And sometimes it's just good to have a friend who just like, won't let up. Um, and who like actually cares about your work and like wants you to push you wants to push you to do better. And so uh, at the end of 2021, I guess I like started writing some stuff and I was like, whoa, this is actually really fun. And I can just like say the things that are on my mind and I can use the words that I think are appropriate to do it. And there's kind of like no stakes to it. I'm just expressing um, ideas. And um, and I started publishing and I was like, OK, like if if like uh, 500 people come to read this um then like that'll be pretty cool and uh and now it's it's more like 20,000 and um uh, which also changes like it feels like now there's pressure to do <laughs> a good job rather than before it was just like here's the idea of it think about guys what do you think uh which also made me think like oh this is a way I could potentially make a living which also changed everything that like oh I could just write about the research that I do and I could do it in the way that I think is the best um for me anyway maybe not the best for everybody but certainly matches with like my expertise and interests and like that like I could do that like 
nobody I know, or, or I just had this idea that, oh, if you want to be a scientist, you need to be an academic, um, or you need to like sell your science soul to some company that will, you know, quote unquote, let you do your own research, whatever. And, uh, and so that now that's kind of the direction I'm going in. Um, whether it helps on the job market, the answer is no, absolutely not. They don't care at all. Um, and I mean, I was, I interviewed for a few jobs last, um, last fall, I think when it hadn't quite taken, like I hadn't written that peer review article that gotten a lot of attention. And so maybe it would be different. I mean, when I was at the conference, like I was chatting to people who, uh, who knew about it. Um, but I mean, I put it in my cover letter and I explained it to people and it sort of felt like, um, uh, like showing people, uh, <laughs> like a color that they've never seen before. And they just like, they don't see it. Even when I was interviewing places, I was like, try to talk about what I was doing. And at, at the time, like the last interview I had, I was working on the peer review piece at the time. And I was in one of my one-on-ones, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about peer review and like the things that don't make sense about it. And the person I was talking to was just like, yeah, it's so crazy. Anyway, here's this thing I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and, um, and I felt a little bit like I was a person, like I was interviewing at McDonald's and I was like, yeah, I just like really like to like poop my pants every day at work. And everyone was like, okay, cool. Anyway, like whatever, um, like here's how the, the fry machine works. I was like, wait, you didn't, you didn't hear the part where like, I'm going to come to work and I am going to, to poop in my pants. Um, and everyone was like, yeah, man. All right, whatever. Um, and I think it's because like no one, no one does this. And so it's not, no one has a schema for, for what this is. And even when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh yeah, like leaving academia and like going to industry. I'm like, no, it, I, I'm going to do the same thing. It's just like my paycheck is going to come from a different place. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, like, have you seen this paper? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> right on. Yeah. It sounds like it has turned into some stream of income yeah. because of all the people that are, that are coming to the blog. Yes. Um, and I, th and I think within a year or maybe two, this could be the main thing that I do. I think it'll, it'll take some time, but I don't know there's, there's this sort of, I think kind of beautiful thing on the internet where like, if you reach enough people, you'll reach some people who value what you're doing enough that they are willing to give you money to do it. And, yes. and I feel like very indebted to, uh, to that, or I feel very, um, also, like, it's very life affirming that like, oh, there are people in the world who will just give money to a thing that they like because they like it, not because it's extracted from them yeah. uh, by force. Uh, like, I'm not their landlord. Right. Like, they won't become homeless. Um, right. uh, and so I like that. Like, Patreon with some yes, of your exactly. favorite YouTube creators or, or whatever. You're a content creator. That's awesome. uh, exactly. Cool. It is, it is uh, intellectual only fans. Right. So, <laughs> so let's talk about that content. So you have this blog called Experimental History. Can you just explain for the audience, like, what is experimental history it's a bad name for a blog about psychology is what it is um no it's uh, a great name <laughs> uh well well also i, I think ultimately i uh, i hope to write about a lot more than psychology and that's part of what it will free me up to do um uh but it kind of came from this idea that like what is psychology like how do we explain it to people and if you take a psych 101 class uh as we all have you know you'll read in the textbook psychology is the study of the brain and the mind and behavior and uh, and it's like, OK, but what are we doing? Like uh, and this is especially difficult for people who, who don't know about experimental psychology. Right. They, people understand clinical psychology because they interact with it um, as a patient or they know someone who's a patient. Um, and that makes sense because it's like, oh, you're a doctor, but for the mind. Um, but what do we do when we study humans and their minds? Um, and, and I think a useful way of thinking about it is basically we do what historians do, except we create the situations rather than wait for them to happen. So we put people in their situations and we measure something about them. 
Um, and essentially we create stories just like historians write about stories. We create stories. And I know that like that word story has become kind of a dirty word in our field because it's used as a way of talking about like, oh, like these are, you know, all of those studies that don't replicate, they were good stories. But I literally mean it in the most basic sense of like, when you talk about people who did things unfolding in time, like that is a story. And I think that's what we make. And I think if we think about that as what we make, I think we can make better ones. Um, and I think we would talk about our work. And I think we do different work if we thought about ourselves that way. So like we were just at, you know, the big uh, social psychology conference we go to uh, every year. And if you walk around and see like some of the posters and talks going on, a lot of them are like, you know, the moderating role of like self-objectification between like system justification and, uh, you know, outgroup homogeneity. And like all these things are just abstractions for talking about people doing things. And if we actually had to put it right. in the words of people doing stuff, um, we might realize like okay, some of these questions are actually really boring and maybe aren't worth uh, talking about. And even though the ones that are worth studying, it's clear what we're doing when we talk about like. So if you had to put that in real words, it'd be like, oh, the way people answered this one question, like had a statistical relationship to the way they answered this other question. You might realize like, oh, wait, this is just about people bubbling things on a screen. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So that that is why it's called that. Yeah, and I, I'm a fan of this idea. In fact, I read an excerpt from your experimental history uh, explainer to my intro psych class, and I'll I'll probably <laughs> keep doing that. Um, oh, one of the things you've written about that's very close to my heart is misperceptions of political attitudes in the general public. This is one of my strong interests in political psych. You have a paper in PNAS for our audience. This is a top journal in our field, and you report data showing that people are woefully inaccurate about where they think people's political attitudes were 40 years ago. So for example, here are the two issues that people were the most inaccurate about. The percentage of people who said they would vote for a black president and concern about climate change. So the actual number of people in 1978 who said they'd vote for a black president was over 75%, according to polls conducted at the time. But participants you surveyed today believe that number was closer to 25%. That's an enormous misperception. As for concern about climate change, people also estimated that only about 25% of folks in 1978 were concerned about climate change, but the actual number was between 60 and 65%. So that's a majority of people over 40 years ago who are concerned about this, and we today have no idea. Mm -hmm. So were there under other findings in your data set that were particularly surprising, and what do you think the big take-home points for us to consider today? Yeah. Um, yeah. Other ones that were surprising. So we have similarly for uh, would you vote for a woman for president um, follows a, a pretty similar one to would you vote for a black person for president? There were ones that I found very personally surprising when I saw the data uh, questions about interracial marriage. Would you feel um, or would you you know support or oppose um, a close family member marrying someone who is black or Hispanic or Asian? Um and uh, in 1990, uh, for each of those, it was about 50% of people saying I would oppose. Um, like 1990, uh, like we're not talking about like 1920 here. Um, uh, on that one, people actually underestimated the change uh, because they didn't realize how bad it was in 1990. In a lot of other cases, they thought that the past was much more racist than it was. On those cases, they didn't understand. So I, I think it's very complicated. It's not, uh, it's not all like in one direction. But I think the takeaway is that 
we have kind of these cartoon visions about the past that like, you know, oh, the past. And I think one of them and and uh, a factor that we found explains a lot of their biases is like, oh, the past is really conservative. People hated minorities. They hated women. Um, they weren't open minded in any way. And like all of that has changed over the past generation. And now we are much more liberal, liberal than we were before. And like that, like directionally, that is true. Like if you ask people, OK, which direction on this question is liberal, um, it tends to like the questions, most of them move in that direction, but not to the extent that people think. And on average, not as far as they actually think that we've gone. They underestimate on average a little bit how liberal attitudes are today. Um, and that holds for a lot of the items, not for every item. So there's some um, exceptions where I think there's been big watershed events that make people think things have changed in the opposite direction. For instance, people think that we are more anti-immigration today than we were in the 60s, right. um, or at least like it hasn't changed or uh, if anything gone more anti-immigration when in fact it's gone the other way. And I think a big reason for that is Trump got elected. And so if you're like, well, we elected this guy who's like immigration is bad, kind of suggests that like we are now more anti-immigration. And I think that's part of the lesson is that like these big things that happen don't actually give you a lot of insight into what's going on in people's heads. Like the reason people get elected president or, um, you know, the reason people become prominent in society or like individual events like have a very loose relationship with the actual desires that people have. I mean, Trump's election is, is a great one, right? Because like more people actually voted against him than for him. Um, and yet he's yeah. the president. So um uh, so it's not like a like if you really want to know what people think, maybe you should go to, you know, pew.com rather than uh, check who's in the White House. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was going to say this dovetails really nicely with uh, our episode 11 with Michael Krauss, and he discussed his work on misperceptions of racial inequality. So if you go back and you if you ask people in the past how much racial inequality there is, they tend to think that the past was less egalitarian than it was. So, so basically, he argues that we want to believe that we live in a much more egalitarian and fair time today. So when we look into the past, we overestimate the inequalities of the past and we underestimate the inequalities in the present. And it seems like there's a similar thing going on. Now, he kind of argues that that works to serve our biases, right? We want to believe that the world is a, a fairer and equal place today. And so in order to believe that about today, we have to project unfairness and inequality into the past. Um, do you see that as, as something that is also happening here? Yeah. So the, the best evidence I have to answer that question is um, I know what people themselves think about each of these issues. And so you might expect if this is purely a motivational account, then like, OK, the people who agree with this attitude should overestimate how much it changed it toward their side. And the people who disagree with, right. with it should overestimate how much it changed against their side. And what I find it actually doesn't make that much of a difference. So agreeing or disagreeing does um, shift where you think attitudes are overall, but it doesn't have a very big effect on what you think the slope was. Um, and so, for instance, mm. even people who aren't worried about climate change or don't believe in it um, also overestimate the increase in uh, belief in climate change. Um, and a difference here m might be that, uh, I don't know, some of these things may be more obvious. Like, it seems pretty hard to argue that people care less about climate change now than they did in the past. And so I think people are not totally divorced from reality. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. How much of this is just and I asked Michael Krauss the same question. How much of this is just plain and simple innumeracy? People are bad with statistics. People don't yeah. know how to like think in terms of percentages and and think about populations and what the population is doing. So how much of you, uh, of this do you think is that? 
Yeah. Um, so one way to answer that is uh, you can look separately at people's inaccuracy versus bias. And we would expect there to be plenty of inaccuracy, um, which is just basically how far are you from the right answer on an individual basis? And of course, people are pretty inaccurate. Those, these are hard questions to answer. But I think a reasonable default assumption is people are inaccurate, but they're all inaccurate in different ways. There should be a wisdom of the crowds effect here where you know I overestimate because I'm just kind of guessing. You underestimate because you're kind of guessing. Our overestimates and underestimates cancel each other out. But on average, we still find big biases. So it's not just that people you know, are randomly throwing darts. It's that they're all throwing the dart too high or all throwing the dart too low. Um, mm -hmm. Another way of answering that question is to say, like, OK, let's make it let's um, widen the bounds of accuracy and just see, like, can they get it? Can they do they understand if this has shifted from a majority view to a minority view? Um, so, you know, maybe going from 30 to you know 40 percent is hard. Um, but if it's gone from 30 percent to 60 percent. Um, you know, that's a meaningful shift. And on about half of the issues, they get it wrong as to whether it's changed from a minority view to a majority view or vice versa. Um, so definitely there's a big part here where these are hard questions to answer. But I think even above and beyond that, there are stories here that people have that they're trying to use to answer these questions that are wrong. So the other thing that I did, and and I think this is going to, this will get us into the territory of like peer review. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about your blog is you, you have so many eyes on you and therefore you have a ton of people kind of engaging in a peer review process with you. They're like in your comments talking about what you're saying and providing a critique or agreeing, which are both versions of peer review, I guess. Yeah. Um, so one of them I found in the comments was people kind of saying, if I squint my eyes, I see that people are generally correct on the directionality and the magnitude. And you were kind of getting into this. So I, I'm curious, one of the things they point out is there's this kind of cutoff problem where it's like, is this somebody overestimating or underestimating? On some level, that's a subjective judgment. Um, I'm curious how y'all dealt with as you're writing this up and thinking about how do we want to sell this paper? How do we want to talk about this paper? People are mostly correct or mostly incorrect. That seems like subjective judgment is involved there. How did you conceptualize that problem? Yeah, totally. Um, this is one of the reasons why I don't want to sell papers. I'd rather just uh, talk about what we right. found. Um, but so but to, to your point earlier, I mean, storytelling, right? Where yeah. you have a story we want to tell about the paper. And so like maybe not sells the wrong word, maybe, but 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 you have a story, you have a narrative behind the paper and the data. And, and yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you make sense of what people did? So um, one answer to that is is to go like, OK, look. We're just going to turn this over to uh, the statistical analysis. So um, we're just going to test in each case, um, did people overestimate or underestimate or correctly estimate the amount of change that there actually was? And we're just going to sort things into bins that way. But of course, then you could ask, like, well, OK, if you widen the bins, how many more items fall into the accurate bin? And I think the best way to show that is just to show for each item what it was. And so that's why there's so many graphs in that paper. Um, and they're organized from largest bias to smallest bias. And so you can see mm. for a good chunk of these, these are big biases. Um, uh, you know, there's a huge shift in one direction or the other and people get that wrong. As you go down, like, OK, yeah, it, it was, you know, 10 points more or, or less. But if you widened that accurate bucket, more would fall into it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I leave that as an exercise to the reader. Like there, there is no objective, uh, measure here of like, what is true accuracy? And so you can widen that bucket as much as you want and see how many things fall into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You also have a Substack post, which is similarly themed, I guess, about political attitudes called the great myths of political hatred. And I really appreciated reading this in part because I think 
some of the mainstream narratives of political polarization are just not supported by data. A lot of people think the average Democrat or Republican is extremely polarized, and some people think we're on the brink of civil war. But you challenge this idea in a nice way, and you have this line about people being complicated that fits so perfectly with the theme of our show. <laughs> you highlight some data showing only about 15% of people say they don't have close friends with different viewpoints, hiring discrimination based on political viewpoint. It's not zero, but it's low. Voting turnout hasn't really increased much, which you would think would happen if people actually really hated each other. So I'm curious why you think there's this mainstream narrative of intense political hatred among Americans. Like, how did we get to have such a misperception here? Yeah, um, I I think part of it is the way that people have sold some of their findings. Um, You know, like you run a study where uh, you're like, what do you where do you, you know, Democrats, where do you think the average Republican falls on this question? And people are like, I think they're crazy. Um, and, and then you write an article about like, uh, Democrats, Republicans think crazy things about one another. And, and obviously I don't think that that's totally wrong. I think that's directionally true, but I think it's pretty easy using the methods that we use to produce some of those crazy results where people are saying things that are just obviously wrong. I once someone saw someone present like Democrats think 30% of Republicans think it's fine to embezzle money. Um, and I just want to go like, if you if you put a gun to that person's head and you're like, get this right, uh, would they still say thirty? What do, like what would, what do they actually mean there? And I think what they mean is I don't like Republicans. Um, mm-hmm. So I think part of it is the way that people have sold their um, their findings. I think part of it too is like, I mean, there is some truth here, and and obviously you know if you look at what's going on in the Senate and the House, like things are are pretty acrimonious. Um, and uh, and yeah. we do know that the way that people vote has polarized. I mean, you can see that happening over time, that it's much more likely that a Democrat votes with a Democrat than it was 50 years ago. Um, and but it's just unclear how much that means for people's everyday interactions with the people that they meet. And so I think if you showed people all the data that we have about misperceptions and antipathy between groups and told them it was about like Serbia um, or told them it was about some f- fictitious, con- uh, you know, fictional country. And you're like, yeah, everyone says they hate each other. They, you know, they say they'd be happy to discriminate against what they don't even think they're human. And if you then ask, like, do you think these people like do you think there's political violence in this country? Like, do you think people go like, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a country where, like, you know, people are fighting in the streets. But when that's when all that data is about the U.S. and you look out the window and it's like, well, I mean, it's not literally zero, but it's not like we have a lot of like Democrats, Republicans, like brawling at the bar. Um, you know, it's like we have them yelling on Twitter and we have sometimes them yelling over the Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it does seem I, I this is a, a thing that I think Dylan and I like to butt heads on here and there is just to the degree to which there is uh, polarization. Something I point out is is it seems like on some uh, a handful of really important issues like climate change is, is one that is very uh, prominent for me. There's just a ton of disagreement between conservatives and liberals about whether we should be spending uh, energy and time and political uh, effort on addressing climate change or not. And because it's such a big deal, because like if you talk to any scientist in climate change, they'll say, hey, we have to address this right away. We don't have time to mess around and like meet in the middle here. We need to like really address this issue immediately. And so that to me strikes me as like a really difficult uh, thing to then go about my day saying, oh, well, there's not really all that much political polarization <laughs> when there's like this huge divide on a really, really important issue. I, I agree we shouldn't overestimate polarization. That's yeah. a bad thing. But at the same time, acknowledge that there are these like gaps that are really fundamentally 
uh, dangerous for the future for trying to get things done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think right there um, you've pointed to an important distinction, which is I think there are substantive issues where people do really disagree, which is importantly different from um, like, I hate this group because I don't understand right. them. Um, <laughs> and and I think if you believe the second, actually solving the first gets a lot harder. And so I have some other work. I haven't published this yet where um, we run an ideological Turing test on Democrats and Republicans, where basically I randomly assign Democrats and Republicans to either write a statement um, saying why they're a Democrat or why they're a Republican. And so half of the people are telling the truth and half of the people are lying. And I tell them I'm going to show these statements to other Democrats and Republicans and I will pay you based on the number of people who think you're telling the truth. And then I do that uh, and tell those people like some of these people are telling the truth, some are lying. I'll pay you based on how many you get uh, accurately. Um, and the writers are great in this study. So Democrats are really good at pretending to be Republicans. Republicans are really good at pretending to be Democrats and the readers can't tell them apart. They're at chance, um, mm. which interesting. So like people know what to say when it's like, okay, here's what the other side is all about. And I'm sure if you keep pushing, you know, these are hundred word statements, you keep pushing and pushing and maybe eventually you get right. to like, okay, I don't know all the details, but, um, but I think it kind of speaks against this idea of like, if we only perceived each other accurately, we could all get get along. Like, no, I actually do think there are substantive and important disagreements. Like one side thinks, you know, a fetus is a life and the other side doesn't. Um, right. And like, how do we solve that? Like, I have no idea. But to think that like, ah, if we could just see each other who we, for who we really are, like those problems would go away. I think that is actually the waste of time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What, what do you think of that, Dylan? First of all, I love the idea of the ideological Turing test. I'm kind of yeah, pulling that over cool. in my mind right now. Um, I, I would, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are, Manny, about you know yeah. mo- mo- moving forward in, in positive directions with regards to policy. Yeah. I mean, you're right. The, there are some things that have been difficult to move people on. I think the reason why climate change specifically, because you brought that up, I think one of the reasons why that's so tricky is because it's important to people, but not as important as a bunch of other things. Like right. it's not nearly at the top of the priority list for either Democrats or Republicans, which right. makes it all the less likely that we're going to be able to move on it. Yeah. And, and and it's just like incredibly disheartening because like if you talk to a scientist, like I said, they will say this should be on the top of our list of things right. to take care of. And if you talk to the average person on either party, like you said, they just won't agree necessarily. But yeah, that's its own uh, problem, I guess. Um, so one of your last points you make, Adam, in your uh, write up on this topic is you say, uh, how much should we hate each other? And I think that's this very provocative point that a lot of people don't ask. I think most people look at the problem of uh, political polarization and they think it would be better if we were all holding hands all the time. Um, and you're saying that doesn't seem quite right. We do need some kind of maybe animosity is not the best word and hate's yeah. not the best word. But I think yeah. you, you tried to write a provocative uh, headline there. But like we do need adversarial relationships within the government and within politics to make things happen and to, to figure things out. So, uh, what's, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I I don't know the answer to the question of, of just like, well, how much animosity, disagreement, whatever should there be? Um, I think there's some pretty obvious cases where like everyone got together and held hands and we did the wrong thing. Uh, I mean, that's how the Iraq war got started. Right. Uh, or the wars that have got us in Iraq. Um, and you know, we're standing here 20 years later and, uh, those didn't seem to be great, but everyone thought they were a good idea at the time. And I mean, I feel this in our field as well that like, like, uh, like I don't really, I don't want, you know, I'm uh, aligned with political liberals. I don't really want conservatives to succeed, but I do want them around to like, keep people honest that like, when we start, when we stop, 
stop having to you know keep our assumptions accountable then i don't know like we just grow i think sort of like intellectually like distended and bloated so yeah how much do we need i don't know but we need some yeah i like that point you made that it kind of just depends on the issue right like i i don't want a ton of disagreement on whether the earth is flat <laughs> for example yeah right I, I want like us all to be holding hands and agreeing and no mm-hmm. polarization on this topic right that ideally that that is the world we live in but when it comes to like you know what's better like uh private schools or public schools you know i don't know like or I, we could conjure up a million more topics that like it's good to have a bunch of diverse people diverse like ideas on that topic to approximate a, a robust dem- democratic process of whether we're coming to the right answer or not so yeah, yeah I completely if, agree. if all of the research is being done by people who have the answer that is most politically convenient for them like then it is going to end up looking like uh, the data is also politically convenient. Yeah. And so you, you like people with different uh, who hope for different outcomes, ideally, you know, both actually trying to get to the truth. But we know that that's not 100 percent possible. Yeah. So I'd rather there be some disagreement. Definitely. After reading through your blog, the piece that stood out to me is most provocative, I think. And maybe based on the comments, the number of comments, and the number of engagement, this is maybe true for you as well, is the paper that's called The Rise and Fall of Peer Review. And uh, in that, in the first couple paragraphs, you kind of claim that the grand experiment of peer review has failed. And I thought that was a very like provocative way of stating your your thesis of the of the piece. And so I'm curious if we could just start with you summarizing the argument that you make there. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of the, the idea behind calling these experimental history is like every choice that we make is an experiment. Like there there is no default. And so ideally, we try to learn from those choices and make better ones in the future. Um, and so there was this choice that that no individual really made, but like certainly as a collective, we definitely made over time to universally subject uh, or, or to to universalize the system where if you want to produce scientific knowledge, the way that you do it is you write up your studies in a certain format, you send it to a journal editor, they send it to other people who review it, um, and then they make some decision based on those reviews as to whether it's going to be published. And that's the way that every scientist does pretty much everything that they do. Um, so the first point is that system is both pretty new and pretty weird. Um, I mean, certainly if you go back far enough, obviously we didn't have journals, mainly, you know, people writing letters to their friends or whatever. Um, but even until pretty recently, there was an ecosystem of the way that people communicated their results. Um, you know, there were, uh, the pamphlets or the things that were put out by a scientific society, like here's what we've been working on. There were things that were much more like magazines or newspapers that are covering um, like scientific developments. There were journals, but that worked a little bit of a different way, whereas like it's kind of just this guy who's the editor and he sort of asks his friends to send in things and then sends out the things. Um, Nature itself began as uh, basically like a fast way of communicating results. And it wasn't seen as, as all that prestigious until um, the past few decades. Um, and so it really isn't until sometime in the 1960s and 70s when this becomes the way that everybody does what they do. Um, so that's the first point. The second is that the um, the costs of that system are both clear and extraordinarily high. And the benefits of that system are, um, I think, at best questionable and could in, in, in the confidence interval overlaps with negative numbers. So we know and, and anyone who's ever reviewed a paper knows it takes a ton of time or anyone who's ever had a paper reviewed knows it takes a ton of time. 
um, one estimate for how much time it takes collectively is 15,000 years of labor every year. And if you value that in the paper, they're like, if you value that at the uh, level that we value, like a postdoc's time, which I think is a funny way of thinking about it, but they're like, it's like a billion dollars. So whatever. I don't We all know it's a lot. That's a number you could put on it. Postdocs are underpaid. That's the yeah, exactly and they're like <laughs> it should be five million dollars, darn it. So uh, so we know that it has extraordinary costs. And the way that we should think about any intervention that we run is that something that's really expensive should have at least clear outcomes and ideally both clear and positive. Um, and this one, I think, has unclear, uh, and this is the third point, has unclear uh, outcomes, and they could be negative. And so when when people have run studies on review, and so Richard Smith, when he was editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, did some of these, you know, you deliberately put errors in the papers, and you send them out to people and just count how many they catch. And on average, it's like 25%, even when we're talking about pretty significant errors, like this paper says it's a randomized controlled trial, but it turns out the way they randomized it was like by the day of the week, which we know is not actual randomization. And so we can't consider this a randomized controlled trial. And uh, that's one way of thinking about the value that we're getting out. Another is how often do you hear the story of like, hey, this person tried to do some fraud, but don't worry, the reviewers caught them. And like now they've been outed as a fraudster and they've been fired. Like maybe those stories happen. Like uh, I've never been able to find them. All the stories about fraud being caught always happen after people have published dozens of papers um, that have all passed peer review. And so even blatant fraud, like the the case that I'm sure you're all familiar with, with, uh, you know, that paper about signing at the beginning versus the end, where like, if you look at the actual data, like it's in different fonts, it's like very clearly copied and pasted, um, oh, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. Stuff like that doesn't get caught. And then you can ask like, okay, well, do do people through their own actions seem to value what happens in the peer review process? And like, I think the answer to that is kind of no. I mean, I was pretty explicitly instructed um, during my uh, scientific training that like, um, that uh, if you get rejected, you like kind of just submit to the next journal. Uh, and like, obviously if they make some kind of devastating critique that you think is true, like you fix it. But most of the time that a paper gets rejected, it's because the, uh, the journal editor is, is like, well, it's not of broad appeal enough or doesn't fit what we're doing. Um, and so then you move on. And so all of those points, I think lead me to the belief that like, it is worth trying something else. And I don't think that like everybody should do something else. I have no interest in trying to control other people's behavior, but I do think there's a lot of value in existing in an ecosystem where people are trying different things, um, even like pretty weird things, uh, and seeing how they work, which is what we used to have and what we lost. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll end the argument there, but that's a that's a summary. Yeah. So I'm an inequality researcher. So your appeal throughout the paper, there's a kind of appeal to like, don't get stuck in the status quo uh -huh. and admit that there's a hierarchy here and, yeah. and and like try to fix it. And I think like that appeals to me so much, right? As someone who like <laughs> wants to like deal with the unequal status quo, like absolutely. I like that so much. Yeah. At the same time, I have like just some difficulties with it. And I'm hoping you're going to either persuade me or, or we'll at least uh, reach an understanding. So sure. One thing is this kind of historical pr uh, perspective you have that like it seems like you're arguing that prestige wasn't always at the center of knowledge production. And I feel like it has been um, newspaper editors have always gatekept what information is allowed in their newspaper. Famous scientists have always been there to gatekeep other people out. There's always been scientific organizations. There's always been expensive equipment in labs to determines who can do what research at the cutting edge of any field. It just seems like in the past it was 
and and I you know my my advisor is Keith Payne. He has this like very long, almost encyclopedic knowledge of the the field in a way that you know counter to what we were talking about earlier. He just really can just conjure up a paper that he read ten years ago about from so and so and give me the citation and tell me where to find it. But like he'll he'll tell me about how um, in some of these older papers from the seventies, the peer review process was sending it to like a friend of yours who worked at a journal who like yeah. read it ahead of time and was like, this looks pretty good. Or you send, you mail it, physically mail it to the journal. And then he, the editor just like hands it to his friend and he's like, what do you think about this? And so yeah. that has kind of always been what the system is. Now it's been systematized in a way. And I'm just wondering, is, is the, are we looking back at the past with rose colored glasses when we say that it was somehow better back then? And I, I'm not sure to what extent that's like central to your argument. It feels like you're saying, no, we need a better future. Not necessarily that the past was better, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I, in some of the write up, I feel like that's a little unclear. Yeah. The, I think the, the main benefit of thinking about the past is just to show that it was possible for science to occur and without the system, the way that we do it right now. And so because a lot of the pushback that I got is like, well, but how could we possibly ever know what's true if like, you know, three anonymous strangers don't sign off on it before it's published? And it's like, well, pretty much anything that we know, uh, if it was published before 1960, like that didn't really happen to it. But I totally agree with you that like it wasn't like there was some time when prestige didn't matter in science. I think the way that it played out was different. And like it like the main action was not at the point of publication, that it wasn't like, oh, the way you publish in this publishing in this journal is way better than publishing in that journal. Like how prestige exactly was administrated back then, I, I don't claim to understand. Um, but it wasn't like today where uh, it's like everybody knows nature science are the best. And then like, oh, there's PNAS. And then like after that, it's like the, you know, the best whatever. And so, like, yeah, I'm not saying that, like overall it was better back then than it's worse yeah, yeah. now. Mainly that this system is clearly not necessary for doing science. Uh, and like mm-hmm. it is also historically unique that the point of prestige or like uh, is at the point of publication. Right. I see what you mean. Yeah, it was more distributed. It was like we had this kind of. uh like the mentorship model was really where you were getting that gatekeeping in in the process where you just had like your advisor back then who really knew more, who, who knew about the field and was telling you about good methods and helping you become a good scientist, but that you were getting your work out there at that point and the, the quality controls were embedded in that process and not so much yeah. at the point of publication. Yeah. And I mean, if you go back, yeah, far enough, like, there's tons of gatekeeping, but it looks different. So I, I reviewed uh, Francis Galton's autobiography and Victorian England was a time when when like the boundary between someone who's a scientist and not. I mean, the, the term didn't even I think exist then. I think it was like invented in the 1860s right. or like coined in the 1860s or something like that. Don't quote me on that. It might not be exactly then. Um, but uh, but like you could kind of be an amateur um, without any particular pedigree. Uh, and if you like were did something that got someone's attention, you can be invited to be part of this club. But of course, in order to do that work, like you had to be someone who like had the time and money to like be screwed around in your lab or whatever. And so uh, and obviously they weren't going to invite anyone other than an English gentleman. And so like the gatekeeping was in part the gatekeeping that society was already doing by default mm-hmm. rather than like additional gatekeeping that science uh, like created on top of it. Um, where something that's I think interesting about our prestige system is that it is uh, like very bespoke for our purposes. Like outside of academia, most people can't tell you the difference between one journal and another. Like people can't tell you that the journal of psychology is not as prestigious as psychological science. Um, whereas 
I think back then people could tell you like, oh, being a member of the British Association is very prestigious and everyone in it knows that and everyone out of it knows that who's, you know, who is a, a British citizen. So that, that's a difference. And it's not to say like one is great and the other's bad, um, only that only that they're different. And the way that things are now is not the way that they've always been or the way that they have to be. Yeah. One thing I found difficult with the argument you lay out is you spend a lot of time counting up like the costs of peer review. And then I was wondering, what about the benefits? Like I didn't it didn't feel like you were balancing out them in a way that allowed me to make an analysis, uh, like a cost benefit analysis myself. Um, so you, you set up the the historical context for that initially implemented peer review. So there was tons of money that flowed into research after World War II, and we needed some way, the government, ide- like mostly, needed some way to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? The, the bad ideas from the good ideas. And so uh, they created a peer review process or a peer review process was created. I guess we don't want to attribute it completely to the government. And you argue that uh, it just hasn't done a good job since then. And you highlight several like cases of failure of peer review. We were talking about some of them right now that people can send in a study and they only identify 25% of the, mm-hmm. the errors that have gone into that paper. But again, this seems to point out the flaws of something and it, and not completely ignore, but kind of uh, background the uh, possible benefits. And it seems like we're in this kind of Churchillian situation where expert peer review is the worst system we have for curating knowledge, except for everything else we've tried, mm-hmm. um, one could argue, I guess. And, and I, I bet that's this is not the first time you've heard that argument. So I'm curious, yes. like, how do you feel about about that argument? Um, I would say that, like... Uh the fact that the costs are so extraordinary means that the benefits should be pretty obvious, right? That like if we asked scientists to spend 15,000 years of labor every year doing something, mm-hmm. I think we'd all go like, well, we want to be pretty clear that this is going to make us better off at the end. Um, yeah. And so it should be really easy to see some evidence of this working somewhere. And so like you know, we have these metrics of scientific progress over time that are obviously flawed or partial or whatever. But if they have any bearing on uh, the actual like quality or progress that we're making, um, you should see some some pretty obvious discontinuity where like we didn't really do this before. Now we do it universally somewhere in between there. Uh, like we should see the lines go up. Um, and like, it shouldn't be like, oh, they go up a little bit or like, like, and mainly the lines go down. Um, especially since 1970. I mean, there's been a lot of work on this of people wringing their hands about like, you know, why are Nobel prizes given out to older and older research now? Like where are the more recent ones? Um, why, why don't we have as many pens or like, why is it research as disruptive? Um, whatever. If this system that's so expensive is so good, I feel like we shouldn't have to look hard at all to see it. So I don't disagree that like there can be benefits. And, you know, people have written to me being like, you know, my papers get better from being reviewed. And I'm like, totally. Yes, uh, I believe that that is possible. Um, You know, papers could be better if they were reviewed twice as much. So like why it just seems like an extremely low bar to clear (laughs) when actually when something costs so much, like the bar is actually much higher to clear as like how good it has to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, so I do think the cost is definitely a big one. And so and 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 the costs are described in different ways. So I think we could talk about costs in terms of like the actual dollar amount. Um, and we can add hours into that, I think, also, because that's part of that. I mean, uh, I don't know. Time is money, as, as yeah. people say. And so one thing that I wanted to point out was just like the exorbitant costs of the publication industry. I, I think most people don't realize this certainly people who are outside the field but like 
everyone is in in the process is volunteer. The reviewers mm-hmm. for academic articles are volunteers. The people who write the articles essentially are volunteers to write those articles. Like we don't get money for every read of our papers. That's just not how any of that works. Mm-hmm. And then um, on top of that, the people who are the editors, not the reviewers, the editors of the paper, very often or are not being paid very much either. If they're getting paid at all, I think I know that at, at high prestige journals, people get like, I guess thousands of dollars of stipends. I, I truly don't know like mm-hmm. the, the ceiling for that, not but it's not to much. live off of, but it's yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's something. It's not enough to live off of. And, and the most horrifying thing I think to learn is that companies like Elsevier, which is one of the most, the, the biggest uh, publication companies have 40% profit margins. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they and, and I mean, like, that's just take home money that yeah. they can just cut off the top. It's not put back into the organization. And that is unheard of for all the industries we think of as being very lucrative. Right. Like Google does not make 40 percent profit on their products. Neither does any other tech company, nor does any other. Like, it's just unheard of. It's it's extreme. It's crazy. So everyone's volunteering. And then people at the top are making a ton of money. And so certainly there are things to hate about the peer review process. I completely agree. Um, I'm hoping you have you can share more of things that are just awful about the peer review process. We should start there. Uh, yeah. So another way to think about the cost. I mean, I agree. It makes no sense. Like the, the way the money flows here. And like, I think it's slightly like next door to the problem of peer review. Like it, you don't have to have a peer reviewed article for someone to be rent seeking in between. Um, like, you know, it could just be an editor stamping the or whatever. But uh, and, you know, there are journals that uh, that like don't make money that um, uh, or are nonprofits or whatever that are still peer reviewed. But another but I think it is all tied up. And the fact that it works this way. I think it's ludicrous. Like I can't think of any, like the idea that anybody would be like, oh, that makes sense. Like is I, I can't boggle the mind. Another cost. And this one is really hard to quantify, but when you set up a system where uh, that is so gate kept, um, people get really good at figuring out um, or spending a lot of time figuring out like, what do I have to do to get the gatekeepers to raise the gate? And I think actually the worst excesses of peer review happen not once the paper is submitted. It happens in your advisor's office as you are talking about the next study to run or the, the next paper to write or what to do. And it becomes this game of like, how can we string together a series of studies and a series of claims and a series of sentences such that when we send it in, they will say good job and publish it. And like some of that, I'm not so crazy to say like that is negatively correlated with doing good science, but it's definitely not one. And I think it's way, way lower than that. And I, and I felt this, you know, at this conference we were just at where sometimes when people are excited about something, it's because like, oh, it's like a really good point or that's a useful tool. But a lot of it is because like basically like, oh, that was a good move. Like I didn't see how you could like get a paper published like doing that thing. Like this becomes a game um, and it's treating this rather than like the production of knowledge. It is like playing chess where it's like, I just need to maneuver properly to get to the other side. I think that is the most damaging part. Yeah. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit that I engage in that same game that you're describing when I'm talking with my students about what next study we're going to run. And I think to myself, oh, well, reviewers aren't going to like that very much, (laughs) but uh, it's, it's not quite the same process as just, just trying to do the best science that you can. And on the other side, you have, editors who will reject a paper just because it didn't cite their work and they're mm-hmm. because they're trying to hack their citations right so it, it's all it, it it becomes a a 
game of perverse incentives, and like you're saying, it it dilutes in some cases the quality of the science rather than enhancing, which is what we wanted to do. I, I was just going to add. Uh, so I have some friends who have gotten uh, um, tenure track jobs recently, where as part of their contract, um, you know, it's like you have to publish this many papers in these journals um, by this time. And like, if you want to talk about the, the the time when the incentives are the strongest to to be naughty uh, when doing research, it is when like you have an R and R, a revise and resubmit at a paper where they're like, you know, really we'd like this paper much better if you had a study showing this. Um, and like, mm-hmm. getting that paper published is the difference between getting tenure or like getting paid and feeding your kids. Um, yep. Uh, like that, that is the place I think where a lot of, you know, the, the malfeasance happens is like when you're under that much pressure, what are, what are you going to do? Like, ah, oh, you know, well, I mean, kick a few people out and like, kind of, that's what we always plan to do is really do it this way that works best for us. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, many are going to say something. I was just going to say like, there is a version of this that is defensible, right? Like I need to do a study that if you say I'm going to do this just to satisfy peer reviewers, that sounds bad. But if it's, well, I have to do this thing because the peer reviewers are going to have a reasonable critique of my paper. And I need to think about like how other people are going to interpret this given that this is a flaw with my paper. So I need to add this thing or I need to do this new study that addresses this potential flaw that is in my uh, narrative. And so that's like a defensible version, right? Of, Of the thing we're talking about. And so it's and, th- and that's what's so hard about all of this is like this is a, a, a thing I, I struggled with with the framing of your paper because you're like peer review is a failure. We need something besides it. And I'm like, but we do need peer review, like whatever system we want to replace the current system of peer review with is going to be peer review. It's just a better one. It, it has less of these perverse incentives. But at the end of the day, there has to be experts who look over what other experts are doing and say, this makes sense for me also. There's like some kind mm-hmm. of social process of validating the the scientific findings from one person to the next. And so I am curious, like, what what are those, those elements of peer review that we need more of? Um, what is your vision for peer review? And I know that wasn't the purpose necessarily of your yeah. article. You were just pointing at a problem. And it's not necessarily, I think some people do like a, a bad rhetorical move where they're like, well, you can't talk bad about my system unless you have a system to replace it. And it's mm-hmm. like, that's not fair. Like you, there are different <laughs> roles for different people in this conversation. And my role could simply be to say, here's a problem. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a good role to have in a, in a conversation. But, but I'm curious if you do have ideas about solutions. Yeah. So um, really, when I say peer review, it, it, I'm using it as a shorthand for universal pre-publication peer review. So the idea of people reading each other's work and checking it and commenting on it is obviously important. And that's good. Right. Um, this is really tying that process to whether the information gets communicated at all and like status given to it by the logo of the journal at the, at the top. Um, mm-hmm. And to what you said about like thinking about how to do your research better because people are going to look at it. Totally. And the way that I try to think about this when I'm doing my work is less like what is going to please a reviewer so they publish my paper and more like if I was giving a talk on this and like is someone going to raise their hand and go, hey, what about this? And would I be embarrassed by that? Um, Which I prefer Mm -hmm. to think about that situation because like I'm already giving the talk. Nobody stops me. Like my ideas are being communicated. And now the question is like. Would I be embarrassed by like how good that point is? And like, so I want to run a study to make sure that it's not that thing that like if I was in the audience is the question that I would ask. Um, so in terms of, of what to do differently. So, uh, I, I mean, I agree with with your assessment. Like, you, you know, you don't have to know how a better system would work in part because 
I think thinking about this as like what system should we have um, is maybe specifying the question at the wrong level. Like none of us actually gets to choose the system. Like this system came about because of a bunch of individuals making totally unrelated choices and to get them to do something else. I don't know. You could spend your life doing that and not move the needle at all. Uh, and so what I'd rather do is um, is is for me, try something else, um, which is posting my research online, writing it in a way that's accessible for a general audience, posting all of the data and code and materials and pre-registrations and whatever, and like letting the comments come as they come um, and seeing like, okay, these are ones that, that like, yeah, I think this is right. And I'll um, edit the paper based on it or I'll run another study. And that's not to say that like, I want to get more people to do this. Um, it's basically that I want uh, people to see that like this is a thing that's possible um, and I want to carve out this part of the ecosystem. And what I'd really like people to do is see that and either be like, oh, that's good for me too. Or like, nah, that's not quite the right thing. But uh, as long as we're talking about other things we could do, like, what if I did this thing? And so I've had all kinds of people write to me about like, what if we had read it for science? Or like, what if we had this platform or like this thing that worked this way? Um, all of which I'm like, I hope that people try those things. Right. Because like, we don't have all that much like, we should not have all that much conviction about like which way is best to go about this. And I think a good default assumption is a diversity of ways is most likely going to be the way that gets us the best results. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that would be my solution is uh, figure out for yourself how you would add diversity to the system. Or if, if like, look, your cause is something else, that's also fine. If you're like, I like this, I get something out of it. Um, I have no interest in stopping those people. Mm hmm. Definitely. Well, I just want to, for the audience sake, like th throw out a few ideas and, and hear you kind of respond to them as like ways that we can improve upon the system that we have. But, but I guess I'll start with one that already exists and, and just hear if you if you like that and if you want to see more of it. So uh, post publication peer review. Right. So paper comes out and then and this happens on Twitter all the time, we start debating whether the paper is a good paper or not, looking at its methods. I'm assuming that's the kind of thing you want to see more of, right? Like, it's that publication has nothing to do with evaluation itself, and that we kind of, and, and this is like a related point, disentangle publication from evaluation, yeah. right? That you can get a paper out there to a preprint uh, server, and people can start looking at it, and that's already been published and the evaluated process is a iterative process that happens over time and people engage with it to different degrees over uh, immediately upon publication years down the road. And we keep having the conversation. Is that kind of the system you would like to see a little bit more of? Um, totally. I'm happy for people to do that. Um, I mean, again, like there, there's no like emperor at the center of the system deciding what we're going to do. Right. And so right. We, and we don't get to vote on it. I think that's great. I think it, and it's not that like those processes always like are good. It's not that people always make good points or like the discussion right, right. is like is le anything less than acrimonious. And I, I think like a lot of that time similarly is, is wasted in part because a lot of what people are doing there is responding to the status of the paper. Uh, that like I have felt this like when I published on my blog and like I'm publishing in a very low status way. I think people have much less incentive to try to tear it down. Uh, I have a paper that just got accepted as nature that I know when that comes out, the modal response is going to be like, this is the crap that gets published in nature the these days. Uh, and like a lot of what that discourse is, is actually status seeking on, on the other end. Right. Mm. And so I think a good guiding principle for that. I mean, what I would tell my students is, is like you should spend the your time on the thing that you think is most important. Like if you think that this finding is like really cool and useful and important, like you should spend your time reviewing it. Like that's helpful to other people. If mainly what you feel about this is like you don't like it, probably you should move on. 
and you know there are cases where it's like oh you know like we need to correct the record like a lot of people believe this and it's false but i think usually especially on the internet what people don't understand is like when you pay attention to something it actually succeeds more um even if what you're doing is yelling at it like that is the way that in fact a lot of people succeed on the internet is getting yelled at a lot and attracting the people who don't like the people who are yelling at them but anyway giving a too long answer to your question which is i think I, i do think that is a good thing for people to do yeah, that makes me think of like the mere exposure effect, right? People are, are more likely to remember a piece of misinformation after you try to correct it, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you expose them to it. And then also uh, just the backlash effect, right? That that if you tell somebody something's bad, that they're more likely to double down on it and them and, and their fans potentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I think I'm very receptive to Adam's viewpoint here at least in terms of the way that peer review works now. And I think if somebody were to come up with, oh, hey, we're all going to stop doing this and do something different, I'd be very receptive to that as well. But who knows? That may also be a failure for other reasons. And we kind of have to keep iterating. I think that was the message I got from your from your post, Adam, which is like we need to try a lot of different things and stop just mm-hmm. doing whatever the status quo is because of, you know, historical reasons or because influential people want us to keep doing it. Like those are, those are bad reasons to continue these practices. We should be more experimental, more creative. And I think, you know, we, we've seen the rise of Sci Archive in our field. And mm-hmm. on a recent episode, Manny and I were talking about that being vindicated by a recent case where basically peer review went horribly wrong and a researcher said screw this i'm out and posted on sci archive and got a huge response and that is incredibly valuable in a way that mainstream journals have not illustrated their value just yet so i think we ought to keep iterating and getting creative and not taking things for granted completely agree yeah and, you know, in the process of uh, prepping for this conversation with you, Adam, um, I talked briefly with Keith Payne, my advisor, um, about, you know, your blog. And, of course, he had heard of it and he had understood your kind of uh, I think he had read it and, and understood your ideas. And he was like, it's funny, man, because Brian Nosick brought brought up a lot of these points back in 2012. And he pointed me to this paper called. And, of course, that, that's a very key thing to do to, like, point you to a paper that came out like 10 years ago and give you the name of the author. But it, it was called Scientific utopia number one opening scientific communication have you are you familiar with this paper i, I feel like you definitely are. yeah yeah and, and as, uh, i watched also a debate that he had with with someone like uh basically like should we post everything on the internet and the and got there i was like uh no we should put everything in the journal yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he he posts he poses this uh, idealized system. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of this paper because I think it's very interesting. He says peer review could be managed by a single service or competing services with an army of editors and reviewers that are presently spread out across thousands of journals. In the new system, authors could select to submit their paper to one or more review services based on the topic, methodology, and type of report. The review services could compete on prestige by improving the quality of their grading system and by offering unique approaches to appeal to the authors based on topic, content, or style of their reports. In this system, authors would uh, submit their paper for grading to the review service as many times as they wish because the version history and grades will be publicly accessible. Authors will have uh, incentives to address critical comments as effectively as possible and to avoid resubmitting many times. Submitting the same manuscript over and over again until the most recent grade happens to be high would be possible, but that behavior would be available publicly and thus have consequences for reputation. Um, and this also brings up uh, just open peer review as a concept, right? That like the whole 
trajectory of where a paper started and where it ended up is all just like preserved for people to read back. And and that kind of gets rid of some of these incentives we've been talking about. But I just think that sounds like such an interesting concept where we just have one website that everything gets posted to. The history is known from day one. Um, We see all the reviews. This just seems to get rid of a lot of the incentive problems that we're that we're seeing. But I'm curious if you're seeing if you're detecting a problem with this that I'm not. And and uh, and yeah. I, th- I think maybe the the problem I would have with it is its singularity that like humans are really good at figuring out how to game whatever system th- uh, they're subject to. Um, and like, I don't know immediately how people would game this one, but uh, I do know I was just at a conference with a lot of people who are extremely anxious about status and getting jobs. And like, yeah, I think people could figure it out. And I think the only defense against that uh or like there kind of is no defense against it other than trying to distribute as much as possible the different systems that like the system has this failure mode um and so like we hopefully have this other one that uh the like that is also a way knowledge is generated that has its own downsides um but at least the downsides are not totally shared so like i don't see anything wrong with that particular method of doing it other than that being the only method of doing it um, hmm. that really what I'm looking for is a way of like increasing variance, um, basically because I think, uh, the, the variance at the bottom end, like the worst stuff, I think pretty much doesn't matter. Uh, like it can sometimes mislead, uh, but I think in, in the long run, um, most of that stuff is just ignored, um, and like doesn't harm us that much. And really what we want is our, our systems that allow the best stuff to come out. And you do that through having a bunch of different um, different systems. So, so yeah, uh, I'd love for that one to exist so long as it wasn't the only way that people were doing things. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I want to bring us maybe to a close on this topic. And I feel like the thing that's really, I think, is most disturbing for people maybe when they read your article and was certainly my experience as well. It just seems like expert peer review is just a bulwark against misinformation. And I know Dylan and I don't necessarily agree on what exactly misinformation is or to the extent that that's a, a problem. Um, so we'll just set aside that for a second because I do think we just need to have like a full episode on the topic of like of misinformation itself. But for example, we've had years of battle against climate change denial and creationism and literal flat earthism, which has made a resurgence to some degree Um, and a host of just alternative medicine claims. It just goes on and on and on. And often these fights just come down to experts reject these claims like a set of peer reviewed studies come out that say no meta-analyses are very clear alternative medicine just doesn't work in the same way that medicine works climate change is real 90 95 percent of peer-reviewed articles argue that that are based off the, the theory that anthropogenic climate change is happening and it seems like there is this implied appear appeal to a process that's more rigorous than simply posting something on the internet and saying it's true um, and I'm, I I think you have probably encountered this a lot with this article that people are just anxious that we would lose our capacity to have this appeal to a scientific process that has been checked by experts. We have verified the veracity of these claims. It's an imperfect system, sure, but it's at least some system that like stems the tide of 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 bad information out there. If we don't want to call it misinformation, so I, I'm just curious, like, how do you react to that that critique that the, those anxieties that people have? Yeah, I I totally understand the desire to have an omniscient gatekeeper who only lets in the truth and keeps out the false stuff. 
I don't think we don't have that now. And I don't think such a person is possible. So, I mean, right now, right, we know that things get published that are outright fraudulent. We know that like no one really checks the data, which is most likely to be where um, an issue is with a paper. Like anyone can see if they read the paper, if something is like egregiously wrong with it. Um, but very few people are going to do all the work that it takes to like open up the data. Like, does it even, does the code even work? Mm-hmm. We don't do that. And I think when we're not doing that, the fact that we stamp some things with um, the imprimatur of, you know, scientists agree this is true, um, could actually be more dangerous than not having it at all. So, I mean, I use this example in the uh, in the post, but, you know, that article uh, that came out in the British Medical or the Lancet about, you know, maybe vaccines cause autism and of 12 like that right. was in a very prestigious peer reviewed uh, journal. It stayed there for um, over a decade, I think, before it was retracted. Um, yeah. And like those things happen. After a lot of pressure. Y- yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, those things happen when, uh, you know, when you have basically a, an extremely flawed system where the outcomes are so different of like it getting that stamp is so different from it not getting that stamp. And, uh, and I actually think like the truth is really hard to know. And the and the idea that someone could really get to the bottom of it uh, by like, you know, kind of reading it over or whatever and then like slapping the name of a journal on it, um, I think is, is a fiction. And so I think we are already in the situation that we fear. And, and I think like really what we should do is trust less overall um, that this idea that like we can look around and know what's true and what's not with a lot of conviction. Like, I don't think so. I think these things take decades to play out sometimes, sometimes much longer than that. Like, I don't think that they can always be adjudicated even in a few weeks of review. Yeah. And I feel like that is an argument for like intellectual humility. But I do feel like there was a little bit of a a straw man version. Like, I don't want the omniscient like person who tells us exactly what's true, what's not. But I do think it must be the case, and and I think it's implied in, in a lot of what you write in your blog. You you you're constant you not constantly. I think you 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 don't overlink. Like I think you your articles are very interesting in that you have a lot of your own thoughts and stuff that aren't necessarily linked back to anything in a, with a hyperlink. But I think when you do link to something, more often than not, you're linking to a peer reviewed article. Mm-hmm. And I think like they're implicit in that is that if I were to take uh, a thousand articles. Uh, a thousand of which uh, from two different sources, one from a, from a set of peer reviewed articles and one from a set of blogs. I think that the peer reviewed articles probabilistically would have a better chance of having high quality expert verified information. And so like, I agree with you. There's not like, there isn't an omniscient person who can really determine what's true, but I think there's a probabilistic uh, selective process that's, that's part of the peer review that, that is better. Like, implicit in your own writing i think you acknowledge this too it is better than just citing a bunch of blogs written by anonymous people right like there is a a benefit toward to peer review over other sources of information or 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 yeah i'm curious like do you agree with that do you disagree where where are we agreeing or disagreeing here yeah i don't know because um i mean the reason why i link to those studies is because like that's the only place this stuff gets done, really. So I can't link to uh, the anonymous blogger who is running studies on the fundamental attribution error. They don't exist. I'd like to live in a world where they do. I actually think that the handful of people who are doing something like this, I find much more trustworthy than the people who uh, who publish in blogs. I mean, for instance, you can compare within person. Uh, you can read what uh, John Haight is doing on Substack right now with like, Hate height, uh, I forget. Height, height. height. Yeah, I Thank would say you. height, but yeah. yeah. Uh, 
where like what he links to is a big Google doc of like, here are all the studies that we've found and like people are commenting on it. Here's my synthesis of those studies and thinking about what this would all look like if it played out over the eight papers he would have to write and uh, how they would get changed or watered down or like one random reviewer is like, well, like I have a paper that says the other thing. You can't do that. Um, I find that much more trustworthy because it is transparent. Like I can go and look at the studies that he's talking about. I can see whether the analysis is appropriate in a way that most journal articles actually aren't that way. Like sometimes the data isn't even there. And then, I mean, there are literally uh, anonymous bloggers as well, not really in psychology, but I mean, my friends who got me into this in the first place, like all of their work is on the internet. All of the code is there. Um, that's actually a higher standard than most journal articles. And so I don't really know, like, what is the fair comparison between like one version or another? And I think you run into the same problem with like, well, but isn't it true that students that go to Harvard are on average smarter than students that go uh, to like some other university? Well, it's like, yes, but but like... Is it because like, is it a selection effect? Like, what is it? And also the distributions are mostly overlapping, whereas right. one of these costs a lot of money. The other doesn't like, do you like the way that they were selected? The, the other thing I would say is like, there is, and I point this out, there is a journal of creationism. It is peer reviewed. And so this comes down not to like, well, someone has checked this, but like a series of links of trust that like, well, I know not to trust the, uh, the creationist peer reviewer, but how do I know that? Well, like, I guess I just already think that it's wrong. Well, like, how do I know that? And I think actually you gain credibility from transparency um, rather than just from fiat, right? Like this person has all of the diplomas and institutional affiliations um, that lead me to believe that they are doing the right thing. And you can see that in our field right now. There are people with all of the affiliations and it's uh, like that we know are doing fraud. <laughs> I mean, that that uh, signing at the top versus the bottom paper, like somebody did some fraud in that paper. Everybody on that paper right. is still publishing research. So, like, what what are we supposed to do about that? And that past peer review is in a very prestigious journal. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a long way of answering your question. I don't know what the right comparison is as to, like, peer reviewed versus not. Um, but, I, yeah, um, which makes that question hard to answer. But I do think that there are people outside the system who are doing uh, work that is better than the average of within the system. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I yeah. After talking with you, I think reading your blog, I was a little more skeptical skeptical than I am now. And now after talking to you, I feel like I 100% agree. Let's just keep trying stuff, y'all. Sure. Like we cannot get we can't rest on our laurels here. The problem exists. We need to address it. We need to keep trying things. I'm still and I and I don't think we agree here either. We can't just throw out everything before we have a better system in place. Like I think, well, I don't know. It seems like you're very wild west uh, here. Like you just want to throw us into the wild west, figure it out, get rid of the system now, and then we'll figure it out on the way. And I feel very much like let's try things in a more. I'm more of an incrementalist here, which is which you're making me feel weird about that because I'm not an incrementalist yeah, on a lot of other normally things. Normally, you're not one of those. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, moderate I just, progressives yeah. over here. It, the enlightened centrist of the episode here uh, yeah. is me. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I think that that bulwark problem is just one that I, I I'm so concerned about. And maybe that has to do with me being very concerned about misinformation in the first place. So Dylan will yeah. have to talk me off that ledge as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to write this with, I think, without like heavily implying that I'm like, we shouldn't do like we should burn all the journals or whatever. And like, I guess if I was made God of science for a day, I would do that. But fortunately, I am not going to be and no one else is. And I'd rather take my role in the ecosystem seriously and like 
I want there to be someone who is like out in the Wild West doing weird stuff so that other people could be like, well, do I want to go into the Wild West too? Or like, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Um, like I said before, I, I feel very uninterested in controlling other people's behavior. That's one reason why I want to get out. And so like, yeah, I, I don't want to try to get people to like, hey, stop publishing in peer-reviewed papers. I only want to expand the way that they think about this and get them to make arguments uh, supporting the position that I think have never had to be made before. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I don't want to throw any babies at all. I think we just shouldn't. <laughs> um, uh, but I think people should think hard about this and and figure out what is what is best for them. And uh, and yeah, I hope to shift the, shift the window of thinking. Many. I think you touched on something really important that I agree. It's going to be another conversation just about the psychology of misinformation because I think that is at the root of the issue here that you feel like without peer review masses of people will believe things that are untrue and i think that that is that that is at the heart of this we're we're trying to accomplish something by differentiating true and false pieces of information for the good of humanity and right. that that is at the heart of this problem but yeah. I think the, the the general issue of misinformation is something that we're going to have to tackle. Yeah. And and just to be clear, it's not just like masses of people will be confused. It's also like the edifice of science relying on that process to like make incremental imp like improvements in knowledge um, and that kind of relying on this like peer review process and then if you get rid of that like what will seep into that process as a consequence also like there's this linkage between peer review science and policy and like what happens to that if we get rid of peer so there's this like it's not just individuals believing bad things or wrong things it's also like the world relies on science like being done and and getting it done right and having good information and I just I, I want to make sure that before we muck around with the knowledge production process that we have like a good system in place. We've really thought about what's going to replace it. And and yeah, yeah, so, I, mean, so I, I am kind of conceiving of misinformation in a more broad way than just like. Right. People believe no, that, that Sandy Hook shooting is was yeah. crisis actors or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to like uh, how well do you think we're doing right now? But but also the fact that like. I don't think uh, I, I think this is an, um, a situation that's ripe for status quo bias that like the fact that we do this right now is a little bit of a historical accident. Like we didn't get here by a bunch of people sitting down and thinking like this is the best system. Um, but I, yeah, I also think it, it, it is like, how good do you think we're doing right now? Like stereotype threat is, you know, is like all very peer reviewed and mindset stuff is all very peer reviewed. And there's tons of studies. And like, will it turn out that those things really are the things that like we claimed at the beginning? It kind of seems more and more like eh, maybe probably not. But now there are many people who believe that like there's all this evidence for it. And like, what will the answer ultimately be? Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, like these things actually take a long time. Um, and, you know, the fact that you can point to eight peer reviewed studies maybe also means that all the ones that were going against this effect, like never got published. Like that is also a, a problem that arises when uh, this is tied to publication. Yeah. And so I, I saw someone tweet recently, recently that like, uh, you know, of the replication attempts that have been done on the journal of consumer research papers um, that like, like, thir like 30 papers have been attempted and like three or something, or like it was yeah. 3% or something. It was like virtually none of them have turned out the way 
And again, like, well, yeah, maybe that's, you know, they were selecting the ones that were most likely not to work, whatever. It, if the system is working and it should be pretty hard, I think, to find a paper like that, or if it's working as people intend, like, I'm actually totally fine with there being extremely high variance in uh, outcomes because I think the bad right. stuff in the long run doesn't matter. And I, po- I point this out in the piece that, like, you know, Newton published uh, about, like, how to, or, I mean, he wrote about how to make a philosopher's stone. We're not still yeah. trying to make philosopher's stones because, like, it doesn't work. Uh, we're still using mechanics right. because when you use those, like, the bridges stay up. And, like, right. we might be misled right. in the short term, um, but uh, but I think in the long term we are less likely to be so. The more that we allow good work to come out um, and the less time that we spend, uh, like, trying to get rid of the bad stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, this is another episode we have to do about uh, the replication crisis and, yeah. to, to you know, different perspectives on that, too. Because I also feel like some some people here, things don't replicate. And I'm like... Well, yeah, there's heterogeneity and and like how all this works. Like it's not it's complicated to to the <laughs> title of our show. But yeah. like I I just like if you did a study on something that is very social psychologically oriented and then it's been 30 years and we've all been talking about it since then and now the effect has changed. I'm like not all that surprised that that might have mm-hmm. happened um, because you replicated in a new country with a different group of people that are from a completely different generation. And like, yeah, anyway, we could we we should do. But when it but when it also but when the failures to replicate also happen in like cancer biology that you know that that's that's i think For sure. less susceptible to the kinds of changes that that to me seems much more a function of the flawed peer review system than like oh culture changes over a few decades right and like profit incentives too and just like all, all sorts of weird stuff when you get into medicine it, it's it's becomes exactly. very different yeah. um anyway we'll return to these topics we got lots to in front of us to talk about um, we have one final question that we like to end the show on. So it's just more of a philosophical question for you. So imagine you're in this other dimension and you're looking at a panel of dials and controls that control human behavior. And so there are dials that and you can just move, increase or decrease these dials and they kind of just extend infinitely in every direction. You can kind of conjure the one that you want to look at. And so there are dials that control really small things like how often people cough. Um, and then there are dials that control really big things like uh, to what extent the peer review system is profit motive, uh, has a profit motive. Um, so the question is, you can pick one dial and change something about humanity, human nature, society, whatever you like. The question is, do you move a dial? If so, which one, how much and why? Hmm. Um, and I'm not allowed to study them like I would if I was a psychologist. Uh, you can't like, yeah, you can't sit there and like fiddle with them and see what, what that does. But like, yeah, you just pick one that you, you feel like you have strong priors that it'll help it for you to move this dial. Uh, oh, then, then I don't touch them. Um, you just leave them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I walk away from the dials. I, I think because, uh, I, I feel too certain about my uncertainty, um, that like the conviction that I have that this is a better way for people to be on average most likely because I think it's a better way for me to be on average or like for the problems that I care about. Um, but I take the deferred diversity of humanity too seriously to think that like I could possibly know what's better for every single human to be. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, like so, I said, so, I, I very, I, I don't like trying to control other people's behavior. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think is so interesting because we've been talking about being this like the god of psychology and things you would do <laughs> in that scenario. And then we've also been talking about like how you don't like to influence people's behavior. So I don't normally do this. I just accept whatever anybody's answer is at this question, but, and we can cut this out, but I am curious, like, uh, 
this is just an extreme example, but like propensity to rape, we could just turn that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you're saying I like even that, even something that's a very clear cut wrong or, or negative, you just like wouldn't want to turn that dial. And I, again, I'm not like policing your answer. I'm sure, just like no. curious to your intuitions here. Um, I guess I guess it would depend on like my belief in this hypothetical that that is truly independent of all other human traits like a butterfly effect type thing that you'll you'll change yeah. this thing that you think is helpful but then when you come back to the real world you you see that you know nuclear war has destroyed humanity or something yeah yes and so like if you tell me in this hypothetical like no you can just make people harm each other less um and it will affect nothing else then you're like okay so this is just a question of like do you want people to harm each other less but i think actually the question you're asking is more interesting which is to what extent do you actually believe that that's the case that like these things are as independent as, uh, uh, and that like you you can just influence one aspect of people's behavior. And, and I don't think empirically that that is the case. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think I have to bite the bullet that even on things that that are egregious and I would like there to be less of. I don't feel certain enough that it would make people on average better because I think these things are all tied together. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, and I think it's it seems very consistent with everything you've said so far and, and the stuff that you're writing. So, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this is great. Thanks again for joining us and being generous with your time. We're going to make sure our listeners know where to find you. Uh, your sub your Substack is called Experimental History. And where, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, my Twitter is at a underscore M underscore Mastriani. Good luck spelling that. Uh, but hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen it written out. Uh, you can find me there or on Substack. Excellent. Perfect. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you would like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at A Bit More Pod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com. 